Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Natasha Margolis with the New Book Network. Today I'm interviewing former Ambassador James Pardue on his book, Peacemakers, American Leadership in the End of Genocide in the Balkans. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So could you tell me how you uh, got from being born in Memphis to grown up in Jonesboro and ended up in the Balkans? Yes, uh, it's a... It- it's a kind of a rambling story, but uh, I'll try to keep it short. I, I uh, grew up in Jonesboro, uh, went to Arkansas State University with a journalism degree and intended to be a journalist, but um, the Vietnam War intervened. I, I had an ROTC commission from uh, ASU and went in the Army, and uh, but then I discovered I liked the Army. I was an intelligence officer for several years and uh, I've completed a career in the uh, in the military and uh, I, I ended my career in the uh, in the Pentagon and I left uh, the army and became uh, a, a senior executive service member on the uh, the staff of the Secretary of Defense working on the Balkans uh, they needed someone to run the Balkan task force so I did that and uh, they started the Holbrook negotiations in 90, 1995 uh, my boss was a member of that team. He unfortunately, tragically, was killed in an accident in early days of the Holbrook uh, negotiations. I was the Secretary of Defense appointed me to replace him, and I stayed with Holbrook through the Dayton Agreement in 1995, and then I went to the State Department and spent 13 years there, working largely on Balkan issues. And then I uh, was appointed U.S. ambassador to Bulgaria, and following that, I, I ended my my government career as a deputy assistant secretary general of NATO for uh, operations in Brussels. So it's uh, I, I would have never imagined when I left Arkansas uh, with a college degree how my career would have uh, transitioned, but um, you know it uh, it turned out to be quite a quite an interesting adventure for me. I said, I'm really glad that you took the time to to write a book about it because this perspective is really not in the historiography of the Balkan Wars of the 21st century. And so um, I guess my next question is, why did you write the book? Well, I became personally involved through this act of fate, really, uh, in U.S. foreign policy and national security intervention in the Balkans uh, from 95 to 2008, just as Yugoslavia broke apart after the fall of communism in the Soviet Union. And the U.S. engagement in the Balkans at that time was just a great story. It was full of drama, fascinating heroes and villains uh, from start to finish. And I was part of that story, so I wanted to present my impressions of the U.S. intervention there and what it meant to the nation. For me, this was just an incredible adventure. The wars that accompanied the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s were the deadliest European conflicts since World War II, and they produced a level of genocide in Europe not seen since the Holocaust. There was 110 
thousand people were killed in Bosnia and Kosovo alone, and over three million people were refugees or or displaced persons. And bringing all that to an end was um, in, involved U.S. leadership beginning in 1995. Uh, and that ended uh, the tragic threat to European security. And I thought that telling this story was important uh, to the historical record and to the understanding of of that intervention uh, as um, from a firsthand participant. And that's why I wrote the book. And I think it's also very important to a dying part of history, which is diplomatic history. And um, I guess you could say that people are still obviously involved in diplomacy, but we hear so very little about it. We only hear it at the level of presidents and maybe vice presidents. And you've taken it to a level of including your personal experiences and being in very um, distinct but unique situations. And um, I was wondering, why did you think that your experience in Bosnia and Kosovo and then trying to get an agreement in Macedonia um, out of all of your illustrious career was so important to you? I think that the intervention in the Balkans was a major foreign policy success for the United States, and it was led by diplomacy with mil- with extensive military support. That's pretty unusual, and um, I, I think it's important for the American public to understand how important dem- diplomacy can be to U.S. national security. In fact, it's the first line of U.S. national defense uh, is diplomacy. Um, you know, the military, and I had a wonderful military career, gets a lot of attention, uh, but just by its very nature, diplomacy is much more subtle and, quite frankly, not quite as uh, publicly sexy as uh, military stuff is. But it's uh, can be dramatically important to a, a successful U.S. intervention. Why? I thought the, the Balkan thing w- was uh, important because the, the, the Oakwood Agreement, which I was heavily involved in, was probably the greatest achievement of my professional career. I mean, it, it saved a nation of two million people. So the effect of diplomacy on, on events in the, in the world, particularly American diplomacy, is so important. And I, I think it's an underappreciated aspect of our national security structure. I think you bring up a really good point about how it's the U.S. involvement that's very significant in this. And it was an involvement that was entirely for humanitarian reasons and not for any economic reasons. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. It, it was, in essence, a humanitarian intervention. But remember, um, European sec- American security is tied to European security. And the breakup of Yugoslavia was a major security threat to stability in southeastern Europe. And so when we have a problem, a security problem in, in, in Europe, the United States has a security problem. So there was a definite security aspect of this. So um, I think the first difference you need to um, explain to listeners is the difference between um, shuttle diplomacy in Bosnia and the Dayton Agreement? A shuttle diplomacy is just a term of art that's used to describe a diplomat, in this case Richard Holbrook, uh, with a team of 
of supporters, myself representing the Department of Defense, Wesley Clark, the Joint Staff, a representative from the State Department and from the White House. We all joined Holbrook and sh we shuttled, we essentially uh, flew around the region, but with with an aircraft in an aircraft provided by the Department of Defense, we we were negotiating very rapidly. But travel in the Balkans is diff was difficult in those days. We had an airplane that allowed us to fly between Belgrade and Zagreb and Sarajevo and the European capitals. And so we sh we the, the diplomacy in Bosnia started with Holbrook shuttling between European and Balkan capitals until he reached an agreement on um, what the on the direct talks, uh, known as proximity talks, close together, that were conducted at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base outside of Dayton, Ohio. And so you had the shuttling of Holbrook in the region, and then all the, the key players in the region came to the United States for for dedicated talks at Day in Dayton, Ohio. And that those talks, the direct talks, the dedicated talks, uh, in Dayton produced the Dayton Agreement in November of 1995, and that Dayton Agreement uh, brought peace to Bosnia and, and uh, for, since then. There had been no fighting in, in, the, in Bosnia since then. And would you say that the success of the Dayton Agreements then led Milosevic to turn towards Kosovo probably more violently than he would have? I, Kosovo was a special case for Milosevic. Uh, it goes back to Serbian history, and I won't try to drag you into uh, Balkan history because that gets very complicated. But uh, Kosovo held a special place uh, in the mind of Serbs, and it was a part of the political legitimacy of Milosevic to defend Serbian interest, historic interest in Kosovo. And when when Kosovo uh, Liberation Army uh, appeared and, and started a uh, movement toward independence, Milosevic uh, cracked down on that. It had little to do with Bosnia. He just had a political imperative in his own mind that he had to stop this, and he cracked down harshly and um, brutally on the uh, Albanians in, in uh, Kosovo. And once again, the U.S. and our European allies had to intervene to stop another genocide from happening and, and prevent a gigantic humanitarian crisis. I mean, half the population of Kosovo ultimately was had became refugees, at least temporarily, uh, under Serbian repression at that time. So along with the Dayton Agreement, um, you were involved in the train and equip movement um, in Bosnia. And what was the difference between setting up negotiated pieces and actually intervening in the population with this kind of effort? Uh, the, the train and equip effort in Bosnia was highly controversial and uh, was a, a difficult diplomatic problem for me. Uh, the President uh, Clinton made a commitment to the Bosnian Muslim government in Sarajevo that if they would agree to the peace agreement that he would assist them with their uh, n their national security and improve their military ca ca capabilities. The Bosnian Muslims had been unfairly um, the, uh, subject to an arms um, embargo throughout the war. Serbia did, it was, was also under this arms embargo, but it doesn't matter for them. It didn't matter for them because they had plenty of weapons. So the the um, Muslims had to 
find their um, security where they could, and that was mostly in the Middle East. We we used the the um, train and equip program, which was a half a billion dollar program of military assistance, training, equipping a new Bosnian army, according to NATO standards, uh, as a, a leverage to get the uh, Muslim side to agree to the peace agreement and to then to break the linkage between the Bosnian government and some uh, more radical Islamic elements that were more than willing to help them, specifically Iran and the Mujahideen. And so we used the train equip program to break that linkage, and it has remained broken. Uh, Bosnia, including all the Muslim leaders who are there, are committed to integration into European institutions, the European Union and NATO. They have they are Western Muslims, and um, and they very much appreciated the support of the United States in helping them with their defense. It also the train equip program helped deter any further um, potential Serbian military aggression because the situation would have been dramatically changed. The Muslims would have been, the the Bosnian government would have been much more prepared to deal with the military threat. So by the time that you were um, finishing up in Bosnia and then moved on to Kosovo, uh, not only had presidents changed, but also cabinets and um, international diplomatic efforts to some extent. What would you describe was the, the biggest difference between Kosovo and Bosnia when it came to diplomacy on your half? Well, Milosevic wasn't willing to negotiate over Kosovo um, initially. Um, he, he Bosnia in Bosnia, the parties, the the government in Sarajevo, the government in Zagreb, and the government in Belgrade were all willing to. They all were suffering from this war in Bosnia to some degree, and they were more inclined to negotiate. In Kosovo, Milosevic was not inclined to negotiate, and it required a military intervention by NATO, a 78-day air campaign. An integration of military uh, support and diplomacy, but at the end it was diplomacy that brought about the agreement with Milosevic to remove his troops. But it was a tremendously different attitude in Belgrade in Bosnia, where they were willing to negotiate, rather than in Kosovo, where they were not until they were forced to do so by the use of military force. And by the time that you had been um, working with Milosevic about Kosovo, had he been declared a war, a war criminal at that point? Uh, he had not been, throughout the Bosnian uh, campaign, he had not been declared a uh, war criminal. And um, that continued through Kosovo. I think it was after peace agreement in Kosovo where he was indicted by the International War Crimes Tribunal for genocide and crimes against humanity. But I've I met with, I met with uh, Milosevic countless times, and um, he was a, a quite a um, – he could be very difficult to deal with, and he was ultimately a genocidal um, tyrant. So dealing with personalities like Milosevic in the Balkans, is there anybody else that you um, worked with diplomatically that kind of had that tyrant mentality as him? Yeah, well, in the course of the date negotiations, as I described in the book, we met with all the uh, the major criminals and uh, war crimes tri- 
uh, the indicted by the war crimes tribunal in Bosnia. We had meetings with uh, General Mladic, General Tolomir, who was the operational commander at Srebrenica, where genocide absolutely occurred. Mladic was responsible for the Srebrenica massacre. Uh, we met with an, any number of them. At, uh, so, you know, this is an, a fascinating part, in my view, of the book, is that I describing the kind of banality of these war criminals and uh, what kind of people they were as we as we dealt with them. So do you think that uh, Croatia got off easily when Tuđman died? Afranjo Tuđman was a uh, was a powerful leader in his country. Um, uh, I I don't know that uh, I don't know that uh, Tuđman would have been indicted for by the International Criminal Tribunal. Uh, I I seriously doubt that. Um, but I think one of his generals was for his conduct in the war in the mil- Croatian military operations in in Bosnia. But I doubt that Trudeau would have ever been indicted. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the the gentleman um, who was indicted, the Bosnian Croatian Slobodan Prajek, who committed suicide um, at the end of the his I guess indictment in the ICTY. Do you, you um, remember when that happened in 2017? No, I don't know that particular person. I, you know, remember that uh, the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, the ICTY, indicted 160 people for uh, genocide and crimes against humanity, violation of human rights as well. And they in, they convicted 80 of them uh, uh, for these crimes. Um, those facing justice included a sitting head of state, uh, Milosevic, and senior ministers and and generals involved in the conflict. So, I, I, you know, I didn't know all all of them by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, the International Criminal Tribunal recognized that genocide had occurred and and many, brought many of them to justice. Yes, and then and then when it came to Macedonia. You had uh, two other previous experiences you could draw on in order to um, bring about a, a diplomatic conclusion. Was this what helped you be so successful in Ohrig? Yes. When I joined Holbrook's team, I had no diplomatic experience, really. I had been a military officer. I'd worked at high level in the government, um, in the joint staff and other places, but I was not a professional diplomat. I could never have... Uh, completed the Okrit Agreement in Macedonia without the experience in Bosnia and uh, Kosovo. And, uh, third, you know, by that time, I would say eight or nine years in the State Department. So I I learned at the uh, foot of the master with Holbrook. I mean, he, would, he was probably one, maybe one of the greatest operational diplomats in U.S. history. Uh, and I think a historic figure uh, who died tragically trying to solve the problems in Afghanistan. But based on the experience in Bosnia and Kosovo, I, I, I had a pretty good feel of what to do in Macedonia. I was familiar with the region. I was familiar with the mentality there. And by that time, I had some experience in diplomacy. So are there any stories about working with Holbrook that you didn't share in the book that you would like to talk about today? Any anecdotes from him? <laughs> well, Holbrook is uh, a fascinating Character. I spent a chapter describing him in the book because he was he was very controversial. Uh, he was also extremely capable. 
I, you know, I have so many anecdotes. I, I try to provide the most interesting ones in the book, but he was, uh, he was, uh, something to see in, in person. And, uh, I learned a great deal from him. He could be, uh, he could be, uh, tough in some cases, ruthless. Um, but he always had, uh, the objective in mind. He wanted to stop the killing. He wanted to stop the humanitarian disaster. And he was willing to use all the tricks in the diplomatic book to achieve that. And he was successful, but he broke a lot of crockery along the way. And, uh, and, uh, he, he could be sometimes very difficult to deal with both with the parties involved in the conflict and with his American colleagues in the state department. He had plenty of enemies, uh, in the government and he was an extremely ambitious man. Obviously he wanted to be secretary of state. That never happened largely because of his personality. I mean, he, uh, he was, uh, he was once described by a very senior person in the white house is, uh, you know, uh, a, a person who was very hard to deal with and uh, uh, was, you know, maybe too much for them to uh, bring bring on board as part of the White House team. So um, since you started in the beginning with Bosnia, ended with uh, Macedonia, uh, you experienced changes in government personnel and in um, cabinets, and what is it like to try to be on the edge of diplomacy, trying to negotiate when there's changes back home you also have to take into effect? And maybe this kind of leads into a bigger question of how have things changed since you began negotiating diplomatically in the Balkans with today's current foreign policy? Each uh, new administration brings with it their own ideas of how um, U.S. national security and diplomacy um, should uh, happen and how best to deal with it. Um, The Clinton team, was the Bush team did not want to get involved in uh, the Balkans. They just didn't, they thought it was a European problem, but the Europeans were unable to solve it. Clinton, too, was reluctant to become involved, but he had made some commitments. And uh, after the Srebrenica massacre, which was obviously an act of genocide, the United States could not stay on the sidelines. And so uh, the Clinton administration uh, launched the Dayton process with Holbrook, and uh, and that worked. And it's important to understand that this the, the, the strategy that they used in the Clinton administration and in the early Bush administration, the next George, um, next Bush administration was, um, a reliance on international cooperation. I mean, the, uh, U.S. involvement in was, um, showed American leadership in this region and it involved working extremely close with our traditional European allies, the the great democracies of Europe, working with the United Nations, working with the European Union, most importantly, working with NATO and the NATO alliance and closely with our European allies. 
it involved the promotion of, of, of democracy and of, of pushing of American diplomat, uh, American humanitarian values in a, a very difficult uh, uh, time. It, it showed U.S. leadership at its at its finest. Remember this this period of inter, U.S. intervention in the Balkans was was the high point of American influence in the post-Soviet period. We we have not we do. In 1995, it was also the high watermark of U.S. relations with Russia. Russia cooperated completely with us in uh, 1995 uh, until Putin came to power in 1999. So the Clinton administration relied on international partnerships, international organizations, our allies and key NATO uh, structures involved American values and American diplomacy led with military support. When the second Bush administration came in, they weren't very excited about the Balkans, but they couldn't they couldn't get away from it because it was a it continued to be a burning issue. I w- they appointed me to go out to uh, Macedon- New Macedonia to resolve the the, uh, the problem there, and we prevented a war in Macedonia. But nine one one changed everything. The, the, uh, September the 11th attacks on the United States and the Balkans after that became a secondary issue to the fight against uh, radical Islamic uh, uh, in, uh, strikes, uh, a threat to the United States. Now the, but I want, I, I do want to make one very, very important point. The, the structure that was in place for the, for these, most of these administrations, where you had a national security advisor having an interagency team working in coordination with each other through the White House of the National Security Council, relying on allies, recognizing American values, working closely with our, dip, dip, uh, our democratic friends and allies around the world recognizing the value of international organizations to supplement, to supplement and help the United States in our effort. This is in very sharp contrast to where we are today in which we are, which the Trump administration is basically moving us away from our allies. He's taken the unilateralist stand. Um, we are, he's trashing NATO. He's, he is, he is, uh, at uh, conflict with our European allies. They, the Trump administration dislikes every international organization, and uh, I just think this is misguided foreign policy and national security strategy. And quite frankly, we can't meet all of our interests alone. We have to have friends and allies. The cost of doing it alone is enormous, and luckily we haven't. That hasn't been tested. Um, is there? An extra chapter or anything that you think you would go back and add to the book at this point? Or do you think you've gotten everything in there that you wanted to say? I would go back. I, I think I would go back and maybe modify at the end. I draw. I spent two chapters talking about what this all means, what the Balkan intervention meant, what, what were the lessons that we learned from that, and um, what should that, how should that have an effect on our foreign policy? Also in the future, I think if I if I revise the book, I would go back and make the emphasis on the, the the structure that was used, the fact that we used we we had close cooperation with our key allies, and we 
recognize the importance of international organizations and we effectively use them to bring peace to the Balkans. I would probably provide more emphasis on that area because I do think it is in very sharp contrast to where we are today. I think that your entire book could be used um, as case studies for genocide prevention, uh, kind of a new field that's opened up lately. Um, I think one of your crucial points, though, and and you've already said this, but I wanted to reemphasize it, is that the United States is not strong if we aren't working with Europe, if Europe is not stable and our relationship with them is not stable, um, which is something that is quite in danger today. Yeah, these unilateralists are very good at, uh, at you know, beating the war drum, but they're not very good at math. The, the United States had... Uh, in World War II, 12 million people in uniform. In Vietnam, I think it was like 4 million people. We have about a million people in uniform today. And if you had tied it, it wasn't enough to, to engage in, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time. We had to pull up the National Guard. So um, when, when people talk about unilateral U.S. action, it better be very small or we have to have allies because we can't do this alone. And uh, I, I just uh, think one of the important points in our whole national security strategy is the importance of allies working with international institutions like NATO, critical to our success for 70 years. And it's not, and to throw it away is a gigantic mistake. So you think that NATO, its significance is way beyond that of the Cold War. It is an entity that is still powerful enough to handle these conflicts if, if, recognized by the important European and, and U.S. leaders. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting aspects of the Balkans is that uh, this gave NATO a whole new emphasis. Up until the Balkans, uh, NATO was focused on defending Central Europe against a Russian threat. Well, that Russian threat had gone away, and NATO was struggling for an identity. And the, the uh, Balkan in, intervention involving NATO in Bosnia and Kosovo um, gave NATO uh, a new sense of direction, and that led to NATO's engagement in Afghanistan. And NATO has been a major player in Afghanistan uh, s- since, I don't know, uh, 2003 or so, and uh, was involved in training missions. NATO expanded its operations um, against piracy off of Africa. They were patrolling uh of the Mediterranean and and uh, became engaged in Libya. These are all things that NATO would have never done prior to the Balkans. And so uh, NATO, working closely with the United States as as one of the thirty partners in the alliance, um, has a has a major contribution to uh, American security. And uh, we should be very very careful. So also with um, the significance of NATO changing and evolving, we now have a different Russia that we're dealing with. Uh, Yeltsin's Russia is definitely a different Russia than Putin's Russia. Would you like to um, explain the significance of Russia now? Uh, Unfortunately, Russia turned to nationalism under Putin. Um, the, The Russian, you know, Russia has a long history of seeking stability and security, and uh, they turned to a strong man because uh, Yeltsin was not that effective as a, as a leader, and, and it, was a, it was a massive change. I mean, I think one of the 
great moments in history is the collapse of the Soviet Union peacefully. Uh, quite honestly, Gorbachev is a hero of mine because this could have been a, a, a huge tragedy for the world uh, if the Soviet collapse of the Soviet system had turned violent. It did not. And I give Gorbachev a lot of credit for that, along with uh, George Bush uh, as well. But because of the confusion in Russia, uh, they, the public turned to a strong man and they got Putin. And Putin is a, an extreme nationalist, a, uni, a Russian unilateralist who would like to go back to the good old days and an absolute threat to the United States. And Russia's attack on the United States in our election in 2016 is something that I think is a major national security issue and should be dealt with at the highest levels of the U.S. government on an urgent basis because Russia is a hostile foreign power and they attacked us in 2016 and they are positioned to attack us again if we don't do something about it. And I think we need a, a strategy. I've written about this in op-eds. We need a national strategy to prevent Russian interference in our 2020 election. So I guess it's like some kind of nostalgia that I wish for the days of the Cold War where things didn't seem like it would, Russia seemed, well, somewhat threatening, but maybe on the ice rink or maybe in space, a couple other incidences, Bay of Pigs, but now this new Russia seems to be actually very frightening. And it doesn't seem to be regularly discussed on, on local news or even national news, um, except for some of these controversies that have popped up. So what are Americans not hearing about Russia that they really need to know? Well, Russia is uh, not a strong economic power. The, the, the Putin regime is one of corruption and authoritarian rule. Uh, there's no freedom of the press. There's no rule of law. There are a bunch of oligarchs who have gotten... Uh, obscenely rich, um, but they have to play Putin's game. So the Russia that exists today is a lot different than the Cold War. I don't want to go back to the Cold War. I, I would like to see a, a Russia that is that shares interest with Europe and the United States, not conf, not is involved not involved in conflict with Europe and the United States. Russia has decided to take a softer approach to its to its uh, it's confrontation with the West, and uh, that's something that we haven't had to deal with so much in the past. They're using uh, disinformation. They're using the Internet. They they employ corruption and all these kind of things to, to affect the elections in not just the United States, but in Western Europe as well. And this is a new threat. Uh, the United States should show leadership in how to deal with it. So far, we're not doing that. Uh, I think the longer this goes, the more emboldened Putin will become, and uh, and uh, we will ultimately have to have to deal with it. But uh, I, I think we need to stop this uh, nonsense now. It wouldn't be that hard to do if we put together a, a national strategy and we had we worked with our allies to confront Russia on this interference in democracy. But uh, so far, we're not doing that, and I think it's an urgent national security issue. So since writing this book, and you said you mentioned that you're writing op-ed columns as well, do you imagine anything else in your writing career 
or you are just going to be enjoying a retirement in Virginia? Uh, well, you know, you, retirement's great, but uh, sometimes you need to do something uh, beyond just uh, taking it easy. So I, I uh, think I have some things to say, and I, I intend to continue to write about foreign policy and U.S. national security strategy. I'm fiddling around with a, another book in my head about growing up in the South in the 1950s and what that what that was like uh, from the perspective of a kid. And uh, but you know that's something that's uh, just bouncing around in my head. So I'm I'm thinking about another book, but we'll see. Well, I would encourage you to uh, actually keep up with that, considering how profound your writing style is in this. And I would love to hear the perspectives of uh, someone from Arkansas on the 1950s with the knowledge that you have today. So how, how did the world seem to you in the 1950s from the perspective of growing up in Arkansas? And Well, it was a simpler time. It was the the... Men had come back from the war, uh, those who survived it. Um, they carried, they were different people than those young men who went off to war. In my case, my father, you know, he had never been more than probably 100 miles from his home until he, until World War II broke out. And then he ended up going all the way across Europe, landed two days after D-Day and went all the way over. So the, the men were back. In some cases, they were damaged. We didn't ex we didn't know about PTSD back in those days, but it existed. Uh, the country was upbeat. We had been victorious. We were changing from an agriculture to a more industrial society. Uh, there was still a lot of poverty around. Uh, it was racially segregated, harshly racially segregated, unfairly uh, segregated, and that was beginning to break free in the fifties. Luckily, thankfully, uh, but as a kid, you know, we would kind of watch this um, Little Rock Central High School, Orville Faubus, the civil rights movement and all that was taking place along with the creation of rock and roll. So uh, it was uh, it was a really a fascinating time in American history. And, uh, you know, to be. To, to look back at that as a, as a kid, you know, we didn't fully grasp what was happening around us, but a lot of big things were happening, and um, it was a pretty exciting time. And then I wanted to just mention your alma mater, Arkansas State University. The ROTC program has always been very strong and produced very great people. Um, I think the tradition still continues today. What was it like being part of the ROTC on uh, Jonesboro's campus? Well, I, I really treasure my experience at Arkansas State. Um, it, I think, launched me. On, I couldn't have done this without the education I got there. Um, I, um, you need to understand that the country was really different back in when I started school there in 1962. The draft was still in place, and um, ROTC in colleges and land grant colleges was mandatory in the first two years. So every every male student at Arkansas State had to be a member of the ROTC program, and then you had a choice uh, for your junior and senior year as to whether or not to go forward to get a commission. And my father advised me to go get a commission because I, I we were facing uh, the Vietnam War, so I did that and. Uh, 
and you know it was a great experience in leadership training and so forth and uh, then when I got in the army I discovered I liked it and stayed but uh, the ASU well I think go uh, ahead. oh no go ahead uh, the ASU uh, experience trained me to be an effective lieutenant in the army and I appreciate that well, I think we've gotten into your book pretty well today and uh, now have a peek into what's possibly in the future for you if you decide to write your memoirs about growing up. Um, I thank you for talking with us today. I know that your book and in our interview today is, is going to reach a lot of people that maybe it wouldn't have normally have gotten to. Um, I know that the Balkans is still in people's minds kind of an uncharted territory and it's important to keep reminding people about the genocide that took place there uh, not more than 20-something years ago. So thank you, Jim, for giving me this time today. Well, thank you. And uh, I, I do want to make one other point about the book. I wrote it to, for, the, for the general reader of nonfiction. So this is not a book written for foreign policy wonks and diplomats only. I tried to write it for any person who's interested in a fascinating story of war and peace, America's engagement in the world, and uh, what that means and what it can mean for the future. So I, I, I would like just like to leave with your listeners that uh, this, is, this is a book written for everybody, not just for specialists in the field of diplomacy. And thank you very much for this interview. It's been very interesting.